you want to turn your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 24, we're going to start there tonight. 1 Samuel chapter 24. Thank you all for being back tonight. And I hope the things we have to say tonight are helpful to us as we live our lives on a daily basis. Well, as you know, last Wednesday night I was not here. I was uh, preaching for the congregation at Parkway. And um, so I thought since uh, those things were still fresh on my mind, and I'm yet to meet a preacher who wasn't fond of a good rerun every now and then, that I would present that same material to you tonight. Um, I was assigned the topic of uh, looking at 2 Samuel chapter 2, or we'll be in a minute after we get through uh, looking at 1 Samuel a little bit, on the topic of finding God in the middle of conflict. You know, we teach our kids that there are some things that are just a fact of life, uh, especially things that aren't pleasant. And for a kid, maybe those unpleasant things might be brushing your teeth every day and taking a bath on a regular basis, those kind of things. But as we get to be adults, we realize there are other things that aren't pleasant, maybe more, a lot of more unpleasant things than just that. One of those things that's a fact of life is conflict, isn't it? Conflict between people is a fact of life. As much as we try to avoid it, there's going to be conflict in our life from time to time. And one of the facts about the fact of life of, being, of conflict is that conflict's very challenging. You should in the middle of a conflict. And if you're like me, and you look back in your past, you're likely to say that you failed miserably at that challenge of maintaining the right attitudes and behaving like you should in the middle of conflict. Tonight, let's look at how we can behave and how we can maintain the correct attitudes by looking to the scriptures, to look to God's instruction and God's guidance on how to handle conflict. And I think we can do that by looking at someone who handled conflict admirably in his life, and that being David. In the passage that, that um, Joseph just read for us, God said about David that he was a man after his heart. God gave David an incredible commendation. Let's look at how he handled conflict and see what we can learn about it in our life. Before we get to the text of the lesson, we need to start back, as I said, told you in 1 Samuel chapter 24, to learn something about conflict in general and our preparation for that. And that is that we should not wait for the conflict to get here before we start to prepare. David's life was a life of preparation for dealing with conflict. Uh, there are some things in life that you don't give a lot of preparation for. For example, you probably haven't given a lot of thought about what you're going to eat for lunch tomorrow while you're out running errands. Don't give a lot of thought to that. On the other hand, you do give a lot of thought if you're hosting Thanksgiving dinner, don't you? There's a lot of thought that goes into that. There are other things that you don't give a lot of thought for. Maybe changing out the light bulb in the kitchen over the kitchen sink. You don't do a lot of preparation for that. When it comes, you change it out when it blows out. But remodeling the kitchen, that's something you do a lot of preparation for. Conflict and handling conflict is one of those things that we need to be preparing for ahead of time. We need to be working on ourselves before the conflict arrives. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 24. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 24 to see how David had been living his life and sets the stage for the conflict he's going to uh, incur as we go into 2 Samuel chapter 2. In 1 Samuel chapter 24, Saul is trying to hunt down David. David has been running from Saul. 
because Saul realizes that David will be king one day and he wants to cut him down and, and, and finish him off so that he does not have to worry about him being a threat to the throne. In 1 Samuel chapter 24, begin reading verse 1. Now it happened when Saul had returned from following the Philistines that it was told him, saying, Take note, David is in the wilderness of Engedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel and went to seek David and his men on the rocks of the wild goats. So he came to the sheepfolds by the road where he, there was a cave, and Saul went in to attend to his needs. David and his men were staying in the recesses of the cave. Then the men of David said to him, This is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will deliver your enemy into your hand, that you may do to him as it seems good to you. And David arose and secretly cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Now it happened afterward that David's heart, was tr uh, heart troubled him because he had cut Saul's robe. And he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him, seeing he is the anointed of the Lord. David was being hunted down by Saul. He had had the opportunity to kill Saul and get rid of this problem in his life. And what did he do? Instead, he just cut a corner of his robe off. The king, the Lord's anointed. That. He said, I shouldn't have even done that to the king, the Lord's anointed. David had been preparing for conflict throughout his life so that he was able to handle it admirably. We can make, make great, take great lessons from David in this regard. We need to be working on our attitudes and our heart so that when conflict arises, we're prepared to handle it. I'm afraid too often we're careless about our faith. We don't nourish it like we should. And so when difficult times come, we're not prepared and we don't handle them like we should. I think it's clear from David that he was working on his faith. He was working to make sure that he was prepared for whatever came in his life. And this preparation is going to be the foundation for what we notice throughout our story tonight. Get over now into 2 Samuel chapter 2. In 2 Samuel chapter 2, beginning reading in verse 1, and you're going to, we're going to find here that conflict can occur in spite of our best efforts to be kind to the other party. We can still have conflict even though when we're trying our best to treat the other person like we should. 2 Samuel chapter 2 Verse 1, Saul is now dead. And David, it happens after this, that David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up to any of the cities of Judah? 2 Samuel chapter 2, verse 1. And the Lord said to him, Go up, David. said, Where shall I go up? And he said, To Hebron. So David went up there, and his two wives also, Hinohem, the Jezreelitess, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite. And David brought up the men who were with him, every man with his household. So they dwelt in the cities of Hebron. Then the men of Judah came, and they, there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. And they told David, saying, The men of Jabesh-Gilead were the ones who buried Saul. So David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, You are blessed of the Lord, for you have shown this kindness to your Lord, to Saul, and have buried him. And now may the Lord show, you kindness, and tr show kindness and truth to you. I also will repay you this kindness because you have done this thing. Now, therefore, let your hands be strengthened and be valiant, for your master Saul is dead. And also the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. But add him over to Mahir, commander of Saul's army, 
took Ishbosheth the son of Saul and brought him over to Mahanim, and he made him king over Gilead, over the Azurites, over Jezreel, over Ephraim, over Benjamin, and over all Israel. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel, and he reigned two years. Only the house of Judah followed David. David was the anointed of God. He was the rightful king. And he had tried to be nice to these people, and instead they anoint Ishbosheth as their king. They reject him. He was rejected in spite of his efforts to be kind. Has this ever happened to you? Someone who is really difficult to deal with? And you realize that they were a challenging personality, perhaps, and you went out of your way to be nice and to be kind and to treat them the way that you should, and they still turn around and do things to hurt you in spite of your best efforts to be kind. This is difficult and challenging, isn't it? And it can cause us to want to be discouraged and tempt us to give up. But the Bible says that there are some conflicts that are beyond our control. In Romans chapter 12, verse 18, in Romans chapter 12, verse 18, we read, If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. We need to try to be peaceful with all men. But notice what it says, if it is possible. That indicates that there are times when it's not going to be possible to be peaceful with all men. As much as is possible with us, we need to live peaceable. But you know what? I'm only responsible for 50% of the equation, aren't I? The other 50% is controlled by the other party. And there are maybe times when I'm dealing with another party who's not willing to live peaceably with me. But if there's conflict, I want to tell you that a Christian can, must not be the cause of the conflict. I need to live peaceably as much as is possible. And if there's going to be conflict, if there's going to be friction, it's going to be on the part of the other person, right? I'm going to treat the other person like I should. But that doesn't mean that there might not be conflict, even if I'm trying my best to make sure that it doesn't happen. Our behavior, we need to note, is independent of the other party. I have to be kind regardless of how the other party is treating me. I have to be kind. It won't always work being kind. It won't always make there not be conflict, but I can't be discouraged. Conflict can occur in spite of my best efforts to be kind. And furthermore, as we go on in the book of 2 Samuel, beginning with verse 11, we learn that when we fight, both sides lose. When there is conflict, when there is friction, when there is a fight, both sides lose. Notice this beginning of verse 11. And at the time that David was king, uh, and the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. Now Abner, the son of Ner, and the servants of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, went down, went out from Mahanim to Gibeon. And Joab, the son of Zariah, and the servants of David went out and met them by the pool of Gibeon. So they sat down, one on one side of the pool and the other on the other side of the pool. Then Abner said to Joab, let the young men now arise and compete before us. And Joab said, Let them arise. So they arose and went over by number, twelve from Benjamin, followers of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and twelve from the servants of David. And each one grasped his opponent by the head and thrust his sword in his opponent's side, so they fell down together. Therefore, that place was called the Field of Sharp Swords, which is in Gibeon. So there was a very fierce battle that day, and Abner 
and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. Now the three sons of Zariah were there, Joab and Abishai and Ashiel. Ashiel was a fleet of foot as a wild gazelle. So Ashiel pursued Abner in the going, uh, in, and in going he did not turn to the right hand or to the left from following Abner. Then Abner looked behind him and said, Are you Ashiel? And he said, answered, I am. And Abner said to him, Turn aside to your right hand or to your left and lay hold on one of the young men and take his armor for yourself. But Ashiel would not turn aside from following him. So Abner said again to Ashiel, Turn aside from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? How then could I face your brother Joab? However, he refused to turn aside. Therefore Abner struck him in the stomach with the blunt end of the spear so that the spear came out of his back and he fell down there and died on the spot. So it was that as many came to the place where Ashiel fell down and died, stood still. This is a bloody, gory, nasty scene. It shows us that when we fight, both sides lose. Some people just like to fight, don't they? Some people are just itching for a fight. You've probably known people like that in your life. People who are just ready to fight at an, at an instant. But maybe it was because of the bad attitudes that they harbored. Attitudes of envy and jealousy and bitterness and hatred. But they were ready to fight at an instant. There are people like that. I think there's other people who want to fight and like to fight because they want people to hurt like they hurt inside. They're not happy. They're hurting. And they think that if they fight and make others miserable, then they'll somehow suffer alongside them. They want to fight because they hurt and they want others to hurt. I think there's others who want to fight because they want to create a diversion away from themselves. If they can create a fight over here, people won't be looking at them and it won't, they won't be focusing on them. They want a diversion somehow. But whatever the reason, when we fight, both sides suffer. Look at verse 15. Look at the gruesome account here, the bloody events in verse 15. So they arose and went over by number 12 from Benjamin, followers of Ishbosheth the son of Saul, and 12 from the servants of David. And each one grasped his opponent by the head and thrust his th sword through his opponent's side. So they fell down together. Both sides lost, didn't they, as a result of the fight. Have you seen it in your life? Have you seen it when there's fighting and conflict in your life, how both sides lose? How about the last time you had a big argument with your spouse? How'd that turn out? How'd that, how'd that turn out? Were you happier on the other side? Did you feel like your relationship was better because you had that fight? No. Both sides lost, didn't they, as a result of that big argument? Have you seen it in the church when there's conflicts in the church? Whether the conflicts are justified or not justified. Maybe it was a conflict over right or wrong that needed to occur, or maybe it was just a conflict over opinion, whatever it was. Was the church stronger as a result of that conflict? Or was it discouraged and weakened? Notice the conflicts that Paul had to endure. We won't read this whole passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, or 2 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning at verse 23. Paul lists all the struggles and conflicts and challenges that he had faced. But notice what it says here. He had had perils among false brethren. He lumps this in with being stoned and being shipwrecked and being in the sea. He, conflicts, he puts all this in there, all this in, he puts conflict with false brethren. Because when there are conflicts, we suffer. And I know Paul was on the right side of these conflicts, and yet he still suffered as a result. When we fight, 
we both, both sides lose. We need to understand that. And for those who want to instigate conflict and those who want to start fights, we need to understand the damage that will result. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 15, Paul says, If you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be also be consumed by one another. Paul says, if you're going to fight, know that there's going to be collateral damages. And those collateral damages are going to be on both sides. When we fight, both sides lose. And as a result, we need to make peace a priority wherever possible. Because nothing good comes from conflict. Both sides lose. As we go on in 2 Samuel, picking up in verse 24, I want to tell you the solution to some fights is that we might just need to stop fighting. Look in verse 24, beginning of 2 Samuel chapter 2. 2 Samuel chapter 2, verse 24. Joab and Abishai pursued, also pursued Abner, and the sun was going down when they came to the hill of Amma, which is before Gia, by the road to the wilderness of Gibeon. Now the children of Benjamin gathered together behind Abner, became a unit, and took their stand on top of a hill. Then Abner called to Joab and said, Shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that it will be bitter in the latter end? How long will it be then until you tell the people to return from pursuing their brethren? And Joab says, As God lives, unless you had spoken, surely by morning all the people would have given up pursuing their brethren. So Joab blew a trumpet, and all the people stood still and did not pursue Israel anymore, nor did they fight anymore. Joab was convinced they needed to stop fighting, and he blew a trumpet. There are some times when we just need to stop fighting. And we're not saying that we just need to accept error. No, if error is involved, Jude verse 3 tells us we can't accept that, and we must have conflict if someone is bringing in error. Jude verse 3, Beloved, when I, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. There are some brethren, there are some people who don't want a conflict even when error is involved, but Jude 3 says we have to have conflict if error is involved. But when error isn't involved, I want to tell you there are some fights that we just need to stop fighting. We need to stop fighting them immediately. Maybe it's the fight with the family member that's been going on for years because there was a misunderstanding because there were feelings that were hurt. Maybe we just need to stop that fight. Maybe it's the fight that goes on with our spouse because we're trying to prove that we were wrong and he or she was, or we were right and he or she was wrong. How many times do you just keep having the argument because you're trying to prove I was right? I don't want to admit that you were right. I want to show that you were wrong. And we just keep going on and on and on. And maybe we just need to stop fighting. Maybe it's the party spirit or the factions in a congregation that can occur or be centered around personalities. And we just need to stop. Maybe it's the matter, arguments over matters of judgment and opinion. When there's fights and conflicts over judgment and opinion, the solution to that might be just stop. Look at verse 28 again. So Joab blew a trumpet... And all the people stood still and did not pursue Israel anymore, nor did they fight anymore. When we're fighting senseless fights 
and we're having arguments and conflicts over things that don't matter, somebody needs to be man enough to blow a trumpet and say, enough's enough. We don't have to fight over this. You don't have to win. You don't have to prove the other person wrong. You don't have to somehow save face or save your reputation. We just need to stop fighting. Have you ever heard someone say you might win the battle and lose the war? You ever seen that happen? You won the fight, but your relationship's forever tarnished. If you're having to do this with your kids, they're squabbling and fighting and fussing, and you're trying to get their attention, and they, they just keep on going. And finally, you have to yell, stop, quit. I don't care who touched whose toy and who went in whose room. Just stop the fighting. And sometimes as adults, we need to just stop. Stop the, 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 the little bitter pick, picking and fighting and just stop. Sometimes the solution is just to stop fighting. And as we go on in 2 Samuel chapter 3, drop down to 2 Samuel chapter 3, verse 6, David's going to illustrate to us how important it is to understand that vengeance is not ours. We do not have to get back. In fact, we cannot get back. In 2 Samuel chapter 3, verse 6, 2 Samuel chapter 3, verse 6. And it was so, while there was a war between the house of Saul and the house of David, that Abner was strengthening his hold on the house of Saul. And Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah. So Ishbosheth said to Abner, Why have you gone in to my father's concubine? Then Abner became very angry at the words of Ishbosheth and said, Am I a dog's head that belongs to Judah? Today I show loyalty to the house of Saul, your father, to his brothers and to his friends. And have not delivered you into the hand of Saul, or David, and you charge me today with a fault concerning this woman. May God do so to Abner, and more also, if I do not do for David, as the Lord has sworn to him, to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up a throne, the throne of David over Israel and over Judah, from Dan to Beersheba. And he could not answer Abner another word because he feared him. So apparently Ishbosheth is leveling a false claim. He's trying to slander and smear. Abner and claim that he's done something he shouldn't have done. And so Abner says, okay, enough of that. I'm going to David's side. And so he does, does go to David's side. He says he's going he's to transfer the kingdom of David from Dan to Beersheba, the whole thing, all of it, from Dan to Beersheba. It's going over to David. Verse 12, then Abner sent messengers on his behalf uh, to David, saying, whose is the land, saying also, make your covenant with me, we'll make a covenant with you. But one thing I require of you, you shall not see my face unless you first bring Michael, Saul's daughter, when you come to see my face. So David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, saying, Give me my wife Michael, whom I betrothed to myself for a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. And Ishbosheth sent and took her from her husband, from Pealtiel, the son of Laish. Then her husband went along with her to Bahurim. Behind, weeping behind her, so Abner said to him, Go return, and he returned. Now Abner had communicated with the elders of Israel, saying, In time past you were seeking for David to be king over you, now then do it. For the Lord has spoken to David, saying, By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and the hand of all their enemies. And Abner also spoke in the hearing of Benjamin. Then Abner also went to speak in the hearing of David in Hebron, all that seemed good to Israel and the whole house of Benjamin. So Abner and 20 men with him came to David at Hebron. And David made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. 
Then Abner said to David, I will arise and go and gather all Israel to my Lord, the king, that they may make a covenant with you and that you may reign over all that your heart desires. So David sent Abner away and he went in peace. Verse 22. And at that moment, the servants of David and Joab came from the raid and brought much spoil with them. But Abner was not with David in Hebron, for he had sent him away and he had gone in peace. When Joab and all the troops that were with him had come, they told Joab, saying, Abner, the son of Ner, came to the king, and he sent him away, and he's gone in peace. Then Joab came to the king and said, What have you done? Look, Abner came to you. Uh, to you. Why is it that you sent him away, and he is gone already? Surely you realize that Abner, the son of Ner, came to deceive you, to know that you're going out and you're coming in, and to know all that you're doing. And when Joab had gone from David's presence, he sent messengers after Abner who brought him back from the well of Sirah, but David did not know it. Now when Abner had returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside in the gate to speak with him privately. And there stabbed him in the stomach so that he died for the blood of Asheel, his brother. Afterward, when David's, David heard it, he said, My kingdom and I are guiltless before the Lord forever of the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. Let it rest on the head of Joab and on all his father's house, and let there never fail to be in the house of Joab one who has a discharge or is a leper, who leans on a staff or falls by the sword, or who lacks bread. So Joab and Abishai his brother killed Abner because they, he had killed their brother Eshel at Gibeon in the battle. Then David said to Joab and to all the people who were with him, Tear your clothes, gird yourselves with sackcloth, and mourn for Abner. And King David followed the coffin, so they buried Abner in Hebron, and the king lifted up his voice and wept at the grave of Abner, and all the people wept. And the king of, uh, sang a lament over Abner and said, Should Abner die as a fool dies? Your hands were not bound, nor your feet put into fetters. As a man falls before wicked men, so you fell. Then all the people wept over him again. And when all the people came to persuade David to eat food while it was still day, David took an oath, saying, God do so to me. And more also, if I taste bread or anything else, till the sun goes down. Now all the people took note of it, and it pleased them, since whatever the king did pleased all the people. For all the people and all Israel understood that day that it had not been the king's intent to kill Abner the son of Ner. Then the king said to his servants, Do you not know that a prince and a great man has fallen this day in Israel? And I am weak today, though anointed king, and these men, the sons of Zariah, are too harsh for me. The Lord repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. Abner had been actively working to defeat David. And yet, he, he had it out for him. He wanted to hurt David. He was acting selfishly in his own interest, in ways that were destructive to David. And when David had the opportunity to enact vengeance on Abner, he passed. David is an incredible example for us. How many times has someone actually turned out for you, wanted to hurt you, acted selfishly towards you, and how did you respond back to them? Did you follow David's example, or did you try to hurt them back? Did you try to find an opportunity for, to make them look bad to others? Did you gossip and slander them? Did you try to take vengeance in some way on the person who'd hurt you? Notice what David's attitude was. Look back in verse 39. The last part of verse 39, the Lord shall repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. David knew that vengeance wasn't his. 
And he said, the Lord will repay. And that echoes what we read in Romans chapter 12, verse 19. Romans chapter 12, verse 19, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. The Lord says, Vengeance is mine. It's not my vengeance. It's God's is to get vengeance, not me. Two verses earlier in Romans chapter 12, verse 17, we read, Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. Are we doing this? Are we doing what God says to do? Are we letting God have the vengeance? In Proverbs chapter 24, verse 29, we read, Do not say, I will do to him just as he has done to me. I will render to the man according to his work. God says, don't say I'm going to do to him like he's done to me. And how many people have said that you know, how many times have you said, he did me dirty? I'm doing him dirty. He did me wrong. I'm going to do him wrong. Don't do that. Nothing comes, good comes from taking what belongs to God. But you might say, well, but wait a minute, that's hard. You don't know how she treated me. You don't know how dirty I was done. This is, I, this is too hard. I've got to get a little vengeance. No, you don't. Don't you think it was hard for David? Don't you think Abner had hurt him badly? But David didn't get any vengeance, did he? Or how about Joseph? We remember David led us through this study in Genesis not too long ago on Wednesday night. In Genesis chapter 50, Jacob is now dead. And Joseph's brothers are sitting around thinking, you know what? Dad was sort of keeping a blanket on things. He was keeping things peaceful. Now that he's gone, Joseph's going to have it out for us. It's going to be our next. And so they go to Joseph, and they beg for mercy. Notice what they say here in Genesis chapter. Perhaps Joseph will hate him. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, perhaps Joseph will hate us and may actually repay us for all the evil which we did to him. So they sent messengers to Joseph, saying, Before your father died, he commanded, saying, Thus you shall say to Joseph, I beg you, please forgive the trespass of your brothers and their sin. For they did evil to you. Now please forgive the trespass of the servants of the, of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Then his brothers also went and fell down before his face. And they said, Behold, we are your servants. Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for am I in the place of God? But as for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good in order to bring about bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. Now, therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Joseph had been done wrong on purpose by his brothers. And that led to him being a servant in Egypt and then being in prison in Egypt. They had done him dirty and wrong. Don't you think it was hard for him to not take vengeance on them? But what did he say? He said, am I in the place of God? Joseph understood that vengeance was God's. He'll repay. Joseph wasn't in the business of getting vengeance, even though it had to be incredibly hard for him. Well, what about our perfect example, Jesus? Was Jesus done wrong? Was Jesus done dirty? The creator of the world who came to save the world from their sins, and yet he was killed and crucified? Did he take vengeance? No. In 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning of verse 21, 
1 Peter 2, verse 21, beginning, For this you were also called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. Jesus didn't take vengeance. And he could have. All it would have taken would be one word, right? And he could have just wiped them all out. But he didn't take vengeance. And he's our example. We cannot take vengeance. There's no place for vengeance. And back to our context before we leave it. Look at verse 36. There's one more point we ought to take from this. Notice the impact that David had on others by the way he handled this conflict. Verse 36 now all the people took note of it, and it pleased them, since whatever the king did pleased all the people. I want to tell you, if we will respond to conflict like we should, and if we will not take vengeance for ourselves, it will make an impact on those who are around us, and it will influence them for good. And then finally, as we look at David and how he handled conflict in his life, look in chapter 4 of 2 Samuel, verse 1 beginning. And David shows us here that there's no room for bitterness in our lives, in spite of the conflict, no matter how ugly the conflict may be. And I dare say that anyone has ever tried to kill you like David had tried to be killed. No one's tried to start a war with you. Nobody's got their swords out to come after you. There's no room for bitterness in any conflict. 2 Samuel chapter 4, beginning of verse 1. Now when Saul, when Saul heard... Uh, sorry, when Saul's son heard that Abner had died in Hebron, he lost heart, and all Israel was troubled. Now Saul's son had two men uh, who were captains of troops. The name of one was Banah, the name of the other was Rechab, uh, the sons of Rimon, the Barathite, of the children of Benjamin. For Beeroth was also part of Benjamin, because the Beerothites fled to Gitaim, and have been sojourners there to this day. It was about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, and his nurse took him up and fled. And it happened as she made haste to flee that he fell down and became lame. His name was Mephibosheth. Then the sons of Rimmon the Beerothite, Rechab and Baanah, set out and came at about the heat of the day to the house of Ishbosheth, who was lying on his bed at noon. And they came there all the way into the house as though to get wheat, and they stabbed him in the stomach. And Rechab and Baanah, his brother, escaped. For when they came into the house, he was lying on his bed in his bedroom. Then they struck him and killed him, beheaded him, and took his head, and were all night escaping through the plain. And when they brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron, and said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. And the Lord has avenged my lord the king this day of Saul and his descendants. But David answered Rechab and Benah, his brother, the sons of Rimmon the Barathite, and said to them, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life from all adversity, when someone told me, saying, Look, Saul is dead, thinking to have brought good news, I arrested him and had him executed in Ziklag, the one who thought I would have give him a reward for his news. How much more when wicked men have killed a righteous person in his own house on his bed? Therefore shall I not now require his blood at your hand and remove you from the earth? So David commanded his young men, and they executed them, cut off their hands and feet, and hanged them by the pool in Hebron. 
But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner in Hebron. David's response to the murder of Ishbosheth shows us that he had no bitterness in his heart, did he? He had no bitterness towards Ishbosheth, who'd been trying to defeat him. The one who had been unrightfully trying to take the throne from David, when he is dead, when he's been killed, David, can that be said of you when you're in the middle of conflict? When you're in the middle of conflict with someone trying to hurt you, could it be said that you don't have any bitterness? What if something bad happened to someone who had been mean to you? How would you feel? Would you take a little bit of sadness? insisted on fighting with you, had insisted always on picking a fight with you. What if he finally met his demise? Would you take some pleasure and joy in hearing about that? What about the woman who'd always had it out for you? What if you get news that she just got a bad health diagnosis and she doesn't have much longer to live? How would you feel? Would you think maybe she's got what's coming to her? Do we have bitterness in our heart or do we have the same response as David had to the news that Ishbosheth had been killed? You know, bitterness is a terrible plague on the one who holds it in his heart. It is said of bitterness that bitterness is like taking poison and hoping the other person dies because bitterness poisons you. In fact, look at what it says in Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 14. Hebrews 12 verse 14 tells us that bitterness can cause us to lose our soul. In Hebrews 12 beginning in verse 14, Pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord, looking carefully lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble and by this many become defiled. There's no place for bitterness in the heart of a Christian. Keeping bitterness out of our heart isn't going to be easy. We're going to have to work proactively at this. We've got to make sure that we are avoiding bitterness at all costs, that we're following David's example. Well, conflict isn't pleasant, is it? It isn't easy dealing with conflict like we should. But the only solution to conflict is dealing with it like God would have us to deal with it. And David illustrates that for us wonderfully in the context we've looked at tonight. We need to be preparing for conflict before conflict arises. We need to understand that conflict can occur in spite of our efforts to live peaceable with all men. When cost, if possible. Both sides are going to suffer. And so we need to avoid fighting at all cost, if possible. And the solution to the conflict might be just to stop. Just stop fighting. If it's a senseless fight, just stop. You don't have to prove you're right. You don't have to save face. You don't have to worry about your reputation. Just stop fighting. Vengeance isn't ours, and there's no room for bitterness in any conflict. As we conclude tonight, we need to make one more observation about conflict. And that is, if you're not living like you should, you got conflict in your life. If you're not living like you should, you've got conflict with God. And that's no conflict that you want. In James chapter 4, verse 4, James chapter 4, verse 4, Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever, therefore, wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. If you're not living like you should, you've got conflict with the Almighty Creator. And that's not going to end well. You're at odds with God, but you don't have to be. God, through His grace and mercy, has extended the opportunity for salvation to us all.
because he wants to be at peace with us. He wants us to be in a relationship with him. Are you taking advantage of that tonight? If you're not, we'd encourage you to make correction to your life in whatever way is necessary so you can be at peace with God. And if we can help with that, let us know while we stand and sing.